Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. I would like to just uh, mention, you know, while our children are leaving, that of course, I'm sure you are realizing from all the publicity and everything that uh, this week there is a holiday, Halloween, right? And uh, many people, of course, uh, Jean Berg reminds us whenever we come on this time of year that she celebrates All Saints Eve. It's kind of a funny holiday, how it's kind of morphed in uh, Western culture. But originally, in the 800s, the Roman Catholic Church did proclaim November 1st as All Saints Day. Remember the saints' communion in heaven. So the night before was All Saints' Eve, like Christmas Eve, as you keep watch for the next day. And uh, the thing, of course, that is very significant is that uh, this week on Tuesday, on all, uh, Halloween actually is a translation of the phrase, the All Saints' Eve. That's what the word actually translated means. And uh, this week on Tuesday is the 500th anniversary of a very special All Saints' Eve, because tradition has it that that is the night, that or the day that Martin Luther posted his theses on the door at Wittenberg, uh, not intending to start a reformation, but intending to have the Catholic Church debate some serious issues that he had he had disagreement with, especially that of indulgences of pain to get your uh, friends and family out of purgatory it was being very corrupt. And so 500 years ago, uh, did launch what we call the Reformation. And uh, we are part of that story as Protestants, Protestants, okay? Um, and uh, part of that story has to do, of course, with uh, ultimately uh, a key theme is how one is saved. Is one saved by uh, sacraments and doing things, or is one saved simply by grace? Salvation by grace alone. And so I want to talk about that this morning as we consider the most, uh, I want to say famous, but the most, the, the most well-known story in the Bible of conversion, that of Saul of Tarsus. There's more ink in our Bibles given to his story in three different accounts in the book of Acts, as well as references in his own epistles, to his conversion than any other person in, in the Bible. And it's a very important story. It has very important implications for us. So I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, where Dale read from earlier. And we're going to talk this morning about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. But let's pray. Father, as we open your word, once again we ask that our hearts will be open to your word. Not just open it to our eyes, but our hearts will be open to your word. This is your holy word. And it's our privilege to read it, preach it freely. We thank you for the freedom we have in this country to do so. And also, Lord, to apply it to our lives and to live by it in the week to come. So we ask your, your presence with us in a very special way as we open your word now in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I'm going to refer uh, this morning as we consider this, I'm going to refer to Saul as Paul, okay, because I know I'm going to say that anyway, so I might as well just get it out there, okay? But the story is about Saul of Tarsus. 
better known as his name changes later in the book of Acts to Paul. So when I refer to Paul, if at the point in the story it's when he's still named Saul, um, you understand who I'm talking about. Okay? The only other person I could be talking about is the King Saul from the Old Testament, whom he is named after. It was a very common Jewish name, and it's a very common Jewish name today. S-O-L, Saul, S-A-U-L, Saul. Uh, Solomon, of course, later on is a, is a different name, uh, the king. But, but King Saul, King Saul, uh, his name is given, and, and the Apostle Paul is named after him. But I want to ask you a question this morning as we, as we begin this. Because it's a very well-known story of conversion and very descript, very, uh, like I said, much ink given to it in our Bibles. What is conversion? What is conversion? Um, conversion is, you know, to convert is to change to something. And we talk about Christian conversion, and we talk freely about that, make no apology, that yes, um, what we would like to see is people to convert to faith in Jesus Christ, not to a religion, not to a sacrament, not to a code, but to faith in a living, real relationship with God through our Savior, Jesus Christ. To change your mind and to accept that and become part of God's family, the church, the body of Christ. What is your conversion story? What is your conversion story? If I were to go around this morning and ask you, what is your conversion story? You will be surprised because I, as a pastor, I get to talk to people at different times, different things about their history and their stories. And it is interesting to me. Some of you, some of us, because I would be in this category, can look back at a very distinct moment in your life where you very distinctly confess Christ as Savior, you acknowledge your need for salvation, you heard the gospel message, or you had heard it, God impressed it on your heart, and you received Christ. As you made that decision. I've told you before, I can remember exactly where I was sitting at Camp Gilead in chapel when Dr. Wynn Johnson, Pastor Wynn Johnson, gave a flannel gaff story of salvation. I'd heard it many times. I was in third grade. I heard that story, and I was convicted, and I made a choice. I didn't go forward. I was pretty shy. Any of you that remember me as a kid, right? Um, I didn't talk a lot. I was very shy. I didn't, I didn't, I don't know if I even raised my hand, but I very distinctly remember doing that. Others of you were saved at such a young age that you really can't pinpoint in your mind the exact moment at which you made that decision. But you're a believer. I know you. I've, I've been with you. I've, you know, you're, you're teaching, you're leading, you're part of the family of God is no doubt. Others of you as adults, and this is what, for some of you that had a very pinpoint process, a pinpoint decision, have a little trouble with this concept, but I've talked to many of you. And if I asked you, when did you become a Christian, you use the term process. And that's because as an adult or a young person, God brought you through this process of really considering it, meeting different people, different steps in your journey. And you get to the point where You've accepted Christ as your Savior. There was no moment sitting in church, sitting in your bedroom, maybe specific pinpoint time, but you know you came to that point where you said yes, it completed, and you said yes to God. And that process came to fruition. What is conversion? And the reason I ask you that is, if this is 
I'm going to use the term carefully, the most famous conversion story. If that exactly is what this is, as we read through it, at what point in this story was Paul converted? At what point? Now we read this morning from Acts chapter 9, the actual story on the road to Damascus. Paul is going to persecute the churches. He is on his way to arrest and persecute Christians. The flash of light, the voice of God, throws him to the ground. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Is it hard to kick against the goes? Is it hard to kick against a cactus? You ever tried that? You ever bumped into a cactus? I know somebody here has, right, Sadie? <laughs> okay. That's the best one of the hazards of living in Arizona, okay? Um, would you try and kick against a cactus? He says, you're, 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 this is in vain. Why are you, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? And then Paul says, what will you have me to do? Get up. I want you to go. And we've, and the rest of the story in chapter nine, we didn't, we didn't read this morning, but let me just, let me just read this, that it says in Damascus, verse 10, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord. The Lord said, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying in a vision. He has seen a man named Ananias. I have given him a vision and he has seen Ananias. You come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Paul was blind for three days. And in the Bible, oftentimes, as we know from the Lord Jesus Christ, that blindness is, a, is also a, a metaphor, a sign of spiritual blindness. Paul loses his sight. He 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 uh, he sees the, the and he sees the, the the light and he loses his sight. And he goes there, and Ananias says, "Lord, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. It's no stranger. We all know who Saul of Tarsus is. We're not looking forward to seeing him. He is coming with authority from the chief priests. We already know that he's coming to persecute us. The word has come. The Lord says, go." This man is a chosen, I like what the, the, the King James says, chosen vessel. Chosen vessel. You know, a vessel belongs to someone else. A vessel doesn't belong to himself, right? A vessel is used for a purpose. It belongs to someone else. And it simply serves a purpose. He says, he is my chosen vessel, my chosen instrument. And he is going to carry my name before Gentiles or kings and before people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And they do meet. And Saul receives his sight. And he is baptized for the remission of sins, as we read in verse 18. Immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes. He could see again. He got up. And he was baptized, as any Jew would understand. When John the Baptist was baptizing in the Jordan River, nobody came and said, John, what are you doing? What is this? The Jews knew exactly what he was doing. Because under the Mosaic Law, if you converted, if you changed you had to wash and purify yourself. It happened all the time. And they did it on a ritual basis as well. But when you converted to Judaism, which the Mosaic Law had a provision for you to do, you had to wash and convert and, and, and wash away your sins, as it were. And Saul goes through this. This whole context that we've been studying in the book of Acts is a very Jewish con context. I wish we could enter into that world for a little bit. In this first century Jewish world, some of us were in Jerusalem a few months back and we entered into that world a little bit. If you could enter into this context, into this world, what is happening? Well, we've been studying the book of Acts. This is not a new religion. 
This is not a new religion. This is the Messiah to Israel who has come, and they are proclaiming, this is the one we've been waiting for. We, we misunderstood. We looked at that, right? Peter says you misunderstood that it was God's plan. But now accept him. He will come back. He is the Messiah. This is all in their context. This is not a new religion. This is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. God is doing something spectacular and something new that they have been waiting for. But the leaders keep resisting, resisting, resisting. Those who sit in Moses' seat and Stephen, as we saw last week, is stoned. And that resistance reaches a pinnacle. And Saul of Tarsus, who's ravaging the church. You know, it's unusual for such a young man to have access to the high priest. He's a young man. His conversion is a few years after the crucifixion story. But for a young man like him to have access to the high priest to get papers to go out and persecute Christians. And and we'll read in the two stories, Acts 22 and Acts 26, where we also have this story of his conversion. We will see what he is doing. By the way, we looked at this last Sunday night. When Jesus was crucified, why were the Romans involved? What did the Pharisees say? We can't do this. We can't crucify him. And that was true. By Roman law, only the Romans had the authority for capital punishment. The Jews could practice corporal punishment, but not capital punishment. But Pilate, in this particular case, what's going on in the early part of Acts, they're pretty much looking the other way. Because people are being killed. People are being killed. This is an intra-Jewish situation. This is happening from the Romans' perspective inside the house of Judaism. This is their problem. There are some who are rather fanatical, who are practicing the Old Testament law, as Phineas did in the Old Testament, and they are persecuting, they are stopping heresy, they are stopping blasphemy, and the Romans kind of looked the other way, evidently, because they were actually killing people for their faith in the Messiah within the household of Israel. It's an intra-Israel affair. And so Saul of Tarsus, Paul, the Apostle Paul, thinking he's doing, look at Acts chapter 22. The other two stories of Paul's conversion are his own account. This is the amazing thing. We get Luke's account in Acts chapter 9. We get Paul's account, his own personal reflection on his story in Acts 22 and Acts 26, where he tells us in detail, twice, giving his testimony before authorities what happened to him? But in Acts chapter 22, and we see in verse uh, verse chapter 4, Paul says this. Well, first of all, how did this man get access to the high priest? The Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians, I was advancing in Judaism well beyond those of my age. I was on the upward upward mobility track in terms of a Pharisee. And he says in verse in verse 3, I am a Jew. Born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city under Gamaliel, the most famous rabbi the last of the famous sages and rabbis of, of this period of time who's still very um, held up in Judaism today. I sat at Gamaliel's feet. I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers, and I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way, capital W in our Bibles, because it's a name for this group. They're calling them the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And this name stuck. I persecuted them to their death, arresting both men and women, throwing them into prison as also the high priest and all the council can testify. I obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus, went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. 
In chapter 26, he recounts the story again, this time before Roman authorities. And in chapter 26, he says, he says the same thing. And he says, and we can look in, in verse 7, I was convinced I ought to do all was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to, many, not just Stephen, many. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. I tried to force them to blaspheme. And in my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute. Paul was a one-man wrecking ball of the early Jewish church in Judea. He ravaged, the term he uses is, I ravaged the church. His, his, no one had to tell Ananias who his was. He knew full well who he was, and he knew he was coming, and they were in fear because of this. Pastor Kevin talked to us about fear today. Don't you think these believers, they heard what was happening. People were dying. People were, families were broken up. People were put in prison. They were martyred. And Saul of Tarsus is at the head of this venture. And it's on that journey that this radical change, this Paul who was acting in belief of his strict obedience to the Mosaic law. He thought he was doing what the law said. And in fact, in a sense, he was. Because in the Mosaic law, there is provision for those who blaspheme. It is stoning. It's in the Mosaic law. He didn't invent this. This came from God, the Mosaic law. It was serious. Because Israel was God's covenant household. And it was serious. It was important that this be protected for God's plan of salvation. And there not be heresy. There not be blasphemy. It was serious. We sang this morning the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy. And to blaspheme God's holy name was a serious matter. Paul didn't invent that. It came from the Old Testament. And Paul says, I was doing exactly what I thought I was supposed to do. And the most radical change, the most radical conversion story in the Bible, in the history really of the world, <laughs> takes place. And I want us to look at that from chapter 22 where Saul recounts what happens in verse 6. He tells us what happens. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground, and I heard voice say to me, Saul, Saul. And there's a couple indications here. Number one, this bright light is clear to the Shekinah glory. Paul says later in 1 Corinthians 15 that I saw the Lord Jesus Christ. Nowhere in the book of Acts does it say he actually saw a figure. Like I'm looking at, I'm looking at these guys here and say, I see Derek. I can see. There's Derek. It never says I saw the physical feature of Jesus, but it does say I saw the Lord. He saw this Shekinah glory, this, this powerful presence of God that Moses saw in, in, when he was in the cleft of the rock when it passed by him. He saw the presence of God. And he heard the voice of God. And the voice said, just like the voice said to Moses, to Abraham, and to Jacob, when Abraham was about to slay his son Isaac, God says, Abraham, Abraham, twice. When God called Moses at the burning bush, Moses, Moses. Jacob, Jacob, Saul, Saul, twice he repeats his name. Saul, it's an emergency. Why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. Who are you, sir? Who, who is this? What is this? 
I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And verse 10 is where we find where, where Saul says, what shall I do? What do I do now? What do I do now? Listen, friends, he had every right to expect that the next thing to happen, and listen, think of the stories, Ananias and Sapphira, Phineas in the Old Testament. What, what very easily could have been the next step for Saul of Tarsus? Huh? Struck dead. Why wouldn't he expect that? He has been persecuting God. Jesus of Nazareth says, Paul, you have been persecuting me. You've been killing people. You've been, you've been breaking up my church. And all of a sudden to realize this is the God of Israel. He is talking to God. And Jesus speaks from heaven. That he has every right to think that he, that he is done. Why wouldn't it be? What do I do now? What, what am I to do, Lord, in this confession? What do you want from me? What do, what do you want? And God, instead of killing him, says, get up. Get up. Go on Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been signed to do. And my companions led me by the hand. This, this man who had been thrown to the ground by this light heard the voice of God, heard the Lord Jesus Christ, realized what he has been doing to the, to the God of Israel. They take him by his hand. He's in shock. I mean, he has heard the voice of God. Jesus is God. He's taken by the hand to Damascus. He's blinded. Maybe I would, assu- I would think he's assuming he's blinded for life. Why wouldn't he be? He will never see again. He's dependent on these people to take him by the hand and the blind man all of a sudden from sight to blindness and to lead him to, to Damascus where he's going to have to somehow be in the presence. What, what's God going to allow with wouldn't it make sense for God to allow them to be punished or something? And he goes there. In verse 12, a man named Ananias came to see me, a devout observer of the law, highly respected by all the Jews. Same story. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see again. And he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear words from his mouth, you will be his witness to all men. Well, you, he's not going to kill you. He has called you to be a witness. He is sending you. You're an apostle. You are one sent by God. This radical transformation from, from, a, from ravaging the church to, to all of a sudden now he's, God says, you're, you're going on my behalf. You are my chosen vessel. I've called you. And you're taking the message of Jesus Christ You are taking it to the nations. You are taking it to Israel. You are taking it to kings. This is what I have called you to. Damascus was six days away on foot, 135 miles. He refused food and drink, a sign of mourning, blindness indicating spiritual blindness. The scales fall off. He can see. He's in the midst of these these Jewish believers in Jesus Christ, disciples. And he has a new commission, a new calling, just as Moses was commissioned. Just as the prophet Isaiah, Lord, I am dead. I have seen, I have seen God. What do I get up? And here's what you have to do. His calling and his commission. He meets Ananias. And then 
Verse 17, I returned to Jerusalem. Let me ask you a question. Where, when was he saved? When was Paul converted? Was it when the light flashed around him? Was it when he said, who are you, sir? Was it when he said, what will you have me to do? Was it when he finished his trip to Damascus and the scales fell off and he received his commission? When was Paul converted? Well, we know this for sure. By the time he left Damascus, he was a follower of Jesus Christ. No doubt about that. That's what matters. That conviction. He was now a follower no matter what it costs, and it cost him a lot. He is giving up everything. He's on the upward track at the feet of Gamaliel. He is, he is, he is a prime position. People are counting on him. He throws it all away in obedience. And by the time he leaves Damascus, he is a follower and an advocate of Jesus Christ. Amen? What is his commission? Listen, friends, the reason we are given this story so clearly, he has been given a very unique calling. He is my chosen vessel to gather my, to, to carry my name before Gentiles, kings, and Israel. But what does Paul do? Notice what he does. He goes back to Jerusalem. He goes back to Jerusalem. Verse 17, when I returned to Jerusalem and I was praying at the temple, he goes back to the temple. He goes back and faces the high priest crowd and the Pharisees and says, I'm one of them now. <laughs> I'm one of them now. And he goes to the temple and he's praying in the temple. Why did he go back to the temple? Friends, he's a Jew. This is not a new religion. He has accepted the Messiah, as, as, the, as what he claimed to be, the Messiah, now he has to tell his people. They were right. Stephen was right. You heard what Stephen said. He was right. He saw the Lord Jesus Christ at the right hand of God. He was right. He goes back to the temple. And he's praying in the temple. And he falls into a trance. And the Lord speaks to him again. Paul, quick. Leave Jerusalem immediately. They will not accept your testimony about me. Don't You don't belong here. Get. Lord, I replied, these men know that I went from one synagogue. Now, why does he say this? They know I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. What is he saying? He's saying, he's assuming when, when the Lord says, get out of the temple, well, his next stop is he must go back to the synagogue. In Judea. But, they, but he says, they know me. What am I going to do if I go back there? They know me. They know what, what are they doing? And look what the Lord says to him. And the Lord said to me, go. I will send you far away to the Gentiles. To do what? To do what? Listen, friends. Judaism had no problem with Gentiles joining. They could convert. They could join the covenant people of God. They could be baptized and washed away their sins. They could accept the Mosaic Law. They could go through circumcision. They could go through all the rites and be part. It's in the Bible. They didn't invent this. God did. God did. 
But something's changed. Go to the Gentiles and what? What are you going to do? He has given this, I'm using the word radical because you have to understand, it is radical what he is called to do. It is so radical. It is so radical. Look at, look at this. Look at the response to this. He finishes his message. He finishes his message. He's telling them his story. He's talking to the leaders of Israel. He's in Jerusalem. And the Lord said, I will send you far away the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. What? I'm sending you to the Gentiles. They listened to him. They were listening to his story. This, this story about Jesus of Nazareth talking to him, about Ananias. They're listening. But the minute he says, I'm being sent to the Gentile. Look what happens. They listened to Paul until he said this. And they raised their voices and they shouted, rid the earth of him. He is not fit to live. John Stott in his commentary in Acts is a wonderful, I meant to bring it to read it to you, but basically he says this, conversion of Gentiles is not the issue. But going to the Gentiles to preach to them that they can simply come through faith on an equal basis apart from the Mosaic law was radical and unacceptable. Get rid of him. This is, this is crazy. In fact, not only them, but the Romans, the same thing in chapter 26 when he tells his story again. And he, and he tells, he tells his story of conversion. He comes down to the end of the story and in verse, and he, he wraps it up by saying this. He tells his story, what's happened? He says, I'm saying nothing that the prophets and Moses wouldn't, verse 23, that Christ would, would suffer as the first to rise from the dead. He will proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles, Festus, who knows well the Jewish law, he interrupts and he says, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you insane. You have, you have reached the tipping point. You have studied so much, you've gone crazy. What are you talking about going to the Gentiles? You're going to come to us, Romans? This is fine inside the house of Israel. You do what you want, convert people. But now you're coming to us and say we can just embrace Christ? Listen, friends, this is so radical. This calling he's been given is so radical that everybody else knows. In fact, you talk to any Jewish scholars, this is, you see this over and over throughout history. And they will tell you this. You will find this Christ that Jesus did not come to start a new religion. Paul's the one who took it to the world. They see it. Festus saw it. The Pharisees saw it. They knew what he was saying. He was suggesting that Gentiles, pagans, absolute idol pagan worshipers, through simple faith in the blood atonement of the cross of Calvary, could accept salvation on equal basis with a law-abiding, serious law-abiding Jew. And they would become one, and they would become equal, apart from the works of the law. Not that the law, it's, it's something equality. And they all got it. And they said, and this is why the Lord said, Paul, I'm not sending you to Judea. I'm not sending you to, I'm sending you to the world, to the Gentiles. 
And the story in the book of Acts is going to shift to the Gentile world. It's going to come back to Jerusalem at the end. Friends, it was not a new religion, but it was faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was no longer joining the household of the Mosaic Law. It was now coming to Christ. Paul's following the law made him reject Christ. But Paul's following Christ made him reject the traditional view of the law. Righteousness. This is, this is the genius of what Martin Luther, with all his faults, there's a lot of history about Martin Luther and books and everything right now, and like everybody had his faults. But you know what? He, he, he simply wanted to he challenge the church. Doesn't, isn't what I read in the Bible, doesn't it seem to indicate, for by grace you are saved through faith, not of works. But it is the gift of God, not of works. Lest anyone sh- isn't, isn't that what I'm reading in the Bible? Our Bible that, that we're keeping from the people. And then the next thing he did that absolutely changed history was putting the New Testament in the German tongue so people could read it themselves and be set free from this monopoly that the church had on the Word of God to tell them what it says. I can read it. This is what it says. Let's talk about it. Friends, this is the heart and soul of the Reformation. And it's, but it started with the Apostle Paul. Go into the Gentile world. Righteousness is no longer a goal, but a gift, Keener says in his commentary. Righteousness is no longer a goal, but a gift. Further acts of righteousness are the fruit. What does this mean for us today in conclusion? You know, have you decided when Paul was converted, any of you? None of you are going to stick your neck out and say, I know when Saul was converted. You tell me in private, okay? Because then you won't feel embarrassed to do that. Conversions uh, is a multiple stories, right? But there comes a point whether you were little and can't remember, whether you were in third grade at Camp Gilead, whether you were in high school, whether you were sitting back here as I've done funerals for, for a family and they said, you know, my husband accepted Christ sitting right back there. Never said anything, no, but he accepted the Lord there. Was it a process that you come to the point where all of a sudden you're at the point point? you say, yeah, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior and I'm saved. It's a wonderful story. It's wonderful how God works. Friends, we should know what God is doing today. What we have as the church, the body of Christ, is an absolute amazing story that anybody from any race, any walk of life, any social status, has equal access through simple faith in Jesus Christ as Savior It has nothing to do with where they were born, who they are, how much they have or don't have. And they are one with us in the church, the body of Christ. And as I mentioned last week, this last week that we've, since we've sat here last week, how many more thousands of people have accepted this and joined the body of Christ? That's why we have missions conference. And then finally, I'm going to just close this verse. First Timothy. What does this mean today? It's very simple. The story of Saul's conversion that is given in such detail serves such a practical point for us. 
chapter 15, verse 15 and chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. Here is a trustworthy saying. It deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the first. Protos, right? Prototype, protos. I am the first. I am the worst. I am the chief. You line up the sinners, put me in the front line. Because I was, why? Because I persecuted the church. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the protos, the first of sinners, Christ Jesus might display His unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on Him and receive eternal life. Now to the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible. Sounds like a good hymn, huh? The only God. The honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What's he saying? He's saying this, friends. There is nobody. There's nobody in your world right now. And I'm talking your world my world. And maybe you're here today and you haven't accepted Christ as Savior. Friends, there is nobody who can ever say, I'm too far gone. God doesn't want me. Paul says, listen, I am the first. I am the prototype. I am the worst. And if God could save me by His simple grace and just call my name, and I respond, there is nobody who can say, I can't do it, or they can't do it. Friends, take hope. If there's a person in your life who you've given up on, and it just seems like there's not a, there's just not a chance, don't give up. Don't give up. Never give up. Paul is the prototype of what God is still doing while we are sitting here today. People have passed from death to life. You can too, through simple faith in Christ. Now I'm going to invite the worship team. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship today. They, they put time into choosing the songs and, and leading us to worship God. They're going to play while I invite the ushers forward. And we just we just want to take a minute. We're just receiving a second offering, of uh, a love offering today. And these gifts will go to Puerto Rico, where we have a variety of ministries. We have churches we're partnering with who are ministering in their neighborhoods. We have Camp Caribe. We have a radio ministry we're connected with. We have a long history there. Any gifts today, 100% of it, will be sent to the Grace Gospel Fellowship, along with churches around the country today. We're taking a love offering to send to our brothers and sisters in Puerto Rico because we are one with them. And they are struggling. We, I was at a board meeting last week. We had a first-hand account from a young lady who was with us, April, who, was with, who, just, who came back. She was there during the hurricane. They don't know when power is going to come back on. But I tell you what, they have more kids than ever coming to their children's ministry. Even now, they are ministering. They are serving their community. So let's, I'm going to pray, Father, bless this offering. I thank you once again, Lord. Uh, I'm just so amazed at the generosity of this congregation. They give sacrificially, not just what's left over, but they sacrifice. And I thank you for that, Lord. I, I really thank you for that. And Lord, bless this offering. Might it be used to help people, to serve people, 
and to share the love of Jesus Christ in the months, months to come as they continue to struggle. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Yesterday, I'm a little stiff today because uh, yesterday my wife was gone for a couple of days on a retreat from her knitting shop she works at. So I decided to take on a project that's been looming in my uh, my list for a while to refinish our kitchen floor. It's it's a hundred year old. It goes back not quite as far as Martin Luther, but it's probably 1970. <laughs> it's a hundred year old floor. It's old growth fur. It was actually a subfloor. It actually had linoleum when I was a kid growing up over it. Took that off once before, refinished it, and it was time. It just has a lot of quirks, marks, stuff. I rented a sander. I sanded it. Got down my hands and knees on the edges and sanded it. On my hands and knees and put a coat of stain on it. And I looked at it, and it's it's still got some quirks. It's still got some marks. <laughs> It still looks like a hundred-year-old floor, but it's looking better. Another coat of stain and a coat of finish. It's going to, it's going to be new, but it's still going to be quirky. You have to apologize. I apologize if you come over and see my new floor. It would have been a lot easier to cover it up. But I don't know when I'm going to, where could I buy old growth fur? Huh? It's a hundred years old. God wants you just the way you are. He doesn't want you to change first. He'll take your quirks. He'll take your blemishes. He'll take the grooves. He'll take it all. But He will change it. He will change you. He will change you. Jesus will make you brand new. But it will still be you. Come to faith in Christ. Father, if we be a person here today who has never got to that point where they have to honestly say, I've heard the message. Maybe I'm on that journey. I'm in that process. But it's time. It's time to simply say yes to God. What will you have me to do, Lord? Father, open their heart and let them respond today with a simple yes to you and receive Christ who loves them so much just the way they are as their Savior. And all God's people can say it together. Amen.